0: certain pastor was hospitalized. He was visited by the chairman of the deacons and the chairman of the deacons said, pastor, I have good news and I have bad news. And the pastor said, let me have it, brother. He said, the good news is the deacons prayed for your recovery. He said, well, what can be bad about that? They're having voted to pray for my recovery. He said, well, pastor, the margin of victory was four to three. Reminds me of some other good news, bad news stories related to pastors. The good news is that your church has given you a one-way ticket to the Holy... That's the bad news, excuse me. The good news is that your church has given you a ticket to the Holy Land. The bad news is it's a one-way ticket. I blew it, didn't I? Sorry about that. And the good news is there was a real good spirit in communion today, and this has to be a Baptist church, as you will quickly discover. The bad news is that the grape juice had fermented. That's why there was such a good spirit. The way in which Paul begins the gospel according to God, known as the book of Romans, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, set apart for the gospel of God, The word gospel, as we have discovered, in essence means good news. However, unlike us, the Apostle Paul is not in a hurry to get to the good part of it as we would consider that which is good. He lingers rather long on what we would consider bad news, actually. After having given the theme of the book of Romans, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he says it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, from faith to faith. Then the apostle says, beginning with verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then he spins from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, describing the wrath of God. He paints a very bleak picture. He begins at verse 19 of chapter 1, to describe the condition of the unrighteous Gentile. And he uses the rest of chapter 1 to derive that picture for us. Then, lest the Jews think they have a leg up on the Gentiles as far as their relationship to God is concerned, he says, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2, and then going all the way through verse 9 of chapter 3, that even the self-righteous person is a person who is lost also and under the wrath of God. Last Sunday, we saw some of the things which Paul says about those who are outside of Christ. He says, none is righteous, not even one. None understands. None seeks for God. None is good. He reiterates, not even one is good. He paints this rather black, dark picture of mankind. But it's important that he do that. It's important for anyone's salvation that he or she understand his or her need. For the forgiveness of sin Whether that person would be considered In the camp of the pagan Gentile Who has lived a very wild and riotous life Or a person who has been religious More or less throughout the tenure Of his or her life We are all in need of this salvation Which God offers to us The picture is a rather hopeless picture Which is painted Man is, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 without hope and without God in this world. Our hopelessness is connected to our estrangement and separation from God because of our sin. But now we come to what has been described by ancients and moderns alike as far as theologians and interpreters of the Bible are concerned to be the watershed passage in the whole Bible. This is like the continental divide of Scripture because as we're going to read in a moment, It makes a departure from what was true of man before Christ came to what can be true of man after Christ came and lived and died and was raised from the dead. This paragraph begins with verse 21 of Romans 3. So please join me as we look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. Paul writes... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when Paul uses this phrase, there is no distinction, you might think, what in the world is he Following up here with verse 23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hasn't he already gotten through talking about that from verse 18, chapter 1, through verse 20 of chapter 3? I thought he was done with painting the picture of man and his sinfulness. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that without exception, those who would be considered unrighteous and those who would be considered self-righteous are all in the same boat. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, therefore we are all in need of the imputed righteousness of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you and I are really going to understand the Bible, if we're going to understand the nature of God, we are going to have to understand some of the great words of the Bible, many of which are contained in this brief passage of Scripture which we're considering together today. Words like justification. Words like redemption. Words like propitiation, these great words, and other words like them, sanctification and glorification, if we're really going to understand the message of Scripture, we must understand these words. However, there are some seemingly insignificant words, tiny words, monosyllabic words, words that we just sort of race over if we're not careful, that are so important to our understanding of the gospel of God. Two such words introduce... This section of Scripture, which goes, by the way, through chapter 5, verse 21 of Romans. Look at verse 21 again, and we're going to focus the rest of our time this morning on these two words. The simple words, but now. They seem so insignificant, but they speak of something so important. They're important because if there is a now... There was a then. The word now, wherever it occurs in Scripture, implies or suggests a before. And there is something true now. And of course, the word but, is sets what precedes with what follows in contrast, in stark contrast with each other. Well, let's think about what Paul knew regarding this matter of but now. Paul had a then, didn't he? Anyone who is familiar with the writings of the Apostle know about his then. He was a self-righteous person. He was a self-made man, religiously speaking. His own testimony, which is recorded in Philippians chapter 3, goes something like this. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh... And when he speaks of the flesh, he's talking about in himself. If anyone else he thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes on to say, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as as for zeal persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, now listen to what he says. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He had never failed to tithe on any money he had ever received. He had never failed to keep the Sabbath. He had been careful to observe all the rituals that are set forth in the Old Testament law. He had been one who had kept all the festivals of the people of Israel. He was a man who, with regard to legalistic righteousness, was faultless. He was impeccable. His character was seamless. As you looked at him, you could find no fault in this man. However, we know that he was full of fault. And Jesus Christ exposed his fault to him. When one day he was on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus with a letter of permission in his hand from the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews, to take into custody, if not take the lives of any Jew who had converted to Christ in the city of Damascus. I can only imagine in his own mind, as he thought about his role in the economy of God prior to receiving Christ, I can only imagine that he concluded that he would begin with Damascus and then he would go to the next city and to the next city and he would get permission, if not sanction, from the Sanhedrin, to go throughout the entire world wiping out this scourge known as Christianity, putting to rest once and for all any notion that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. But then you know the story, as he was riding on a donkey or a horse on the road to Damascus, immediately he was knocked off his horse by the Lord, and he was blinded. The scales came off his spiritual eyes, as his physical eyes were blinded, however, And he came to know Jesus Christ. And then, there was a difference in this man's life. Whereas his life had been characterized by arrogance, by self-confidence, now his life was characterized by humility and trust in God alone through Jesus Christ. This man's life was radically rearranged. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you have depended on yourself for your relationship to God. Maybe you have depended upon the fact that you've been faithful to give according to the law. Maybe you've been faithful to be in church, to be in your place. Maybe you've even served in some capacity in the church. Please understand that all those things are good and well. But those things are not the things which make a person right with God. There was a then in the Apostle Paul's life, but there was a now. But Paul also knew, although it was not his own personal experience, that these pagans which he had talked about, and I wish time would permit for us to go back and review, do it on your own time today, what he says in the latter part of chapter 1 about the unrighteous Gentiles. It's a very dark picture which he paints. They were people who were destroying themselves by the way in which they lived. Their very lifestyles contributed to their own demise. But there was a then in their lives, and many of those people had made the transition, some of whom were even in the Roman church, to something different. Hold your place and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The book of 1 Corinthians, of course, was addressed to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was arguably... The most depraved city in the Roman world. In fact, to Corinthianize was a synonym for living a life of debauchery and just complete, absolute rejection of any morality whatsoever. So you understand that the people who made up that church came out of that kind of lifestyle. They were those who would be probably well described by what Paul writes in the latter part of chapter one. Now notice what he says in first of, of Romans. Now look what he says in First Corinthians chapter six, beginning with verse nine. Are do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, now get this, such were some of you. But now, is what the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians, in the same way in which he says, but now, to the Romans in Romans 3.21. But now, look what he says, but you were washed... But you were sanctified or set apart for my use. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The gospel is for the unrighteous as well as for the self-righteous. The name Augustine means something to some of us, much to others and nothing to some of you perhaps. But allow me to tell you the story in brief of the man whom we know as St. Augustine. Augustine was born in 356 in North Africa in a place called Tagast. From an early age, he was taught the scriptures by his mother, who was a devout Christian. His father had very little positive influence on his life. It was only right before he died that Augustine's father confessed faith in Christ and was baptized as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Augustine entered into what we would call adolescence, his appetite... For sex was prodigious. So much so that by the age of 16, he had taken his first mistress, and with her, he fathered a child. Adiodatas was his name. He refused to marry her. He lived with her for 15 more years. At the same time, he was possessed of a very brilliant mind. He studied rhetoric. He studied, first of all, in Carthage. Then he went to Rome across the Mediterranean. And he finally found himself in what we now know as the Italian city of Milan. It was there that he began to go to hear a preacher there by the name of Ambrose. He did not go to hear the sermon for the content of the sermon. He came to hear because Ambrose himself was a great rhetorician and he greatly appreciated anyone who could could project that great science of rhetoric in speech. But as he sat under that man's teaching, the Word of God became more and more clear. And by the way, by this time, he had, in effect, divorced his first mistress in, anticip- in, in anticipation of marrying a young lady, but he had to wait two years as a result of the father saying, you must wait two years to marry my daughter. He could not constrain himself that long so he ended up taking a second mistress with whom he was living at this time in his early 30s in Milan but then a man from North Africa shared his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ disturbed by what he heard and by the way he had tried all kinds of religions by this time Manichaeism and Neoplatonism he had tried all kinds of religions And so he came home one day, deeply disturbed, after hearing the testimony of this man, how this man's life had been changed. So he sat down in his garden, and all of a sudden, he heard these words, Take up and read, take up and read. And he had a Bible nearby. He assumed that that voice was telling him from God to take up the Bible and to read. And he just randomly opened the Scripture. And when he opened the Scripture, he came to Romans chapter 13, verse 13. And this is what he read. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. This was like an autobiographical statement. He could have written this statement himself to describe his life for the first 33 years of his life. But this is what he read in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He got on his knees before God... And he asked Jesus Christ to come into his life. He put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He received by grace through faith salvation. There was a big then in Augustine's life, but there was a now because of the grace of God. God came and he redeemed him. If God could save an Augustine, he can save anybody. Monica, his mother, had prayed all those years for his salvation. There's a word of encouragement. any parent, by the way, or anyone for that matter, who has a family member or a friend for whom you've been praying. She'd been praying for him all of his life to come to the Lord. Most people would have given up by then, but she continued to pray for his salvation, and she was rewarded. Shortly thereafter, she died. Augustine, within ten years after his conversion, had been elevated to the place of bishop. He was a bishop in the church. Not merely a priest, but he became a bishop. And we owe, even to this day, a great deal of insight to what the Bible teaches about who God is and what the Christian faith is to St. Augustine. Amazing. The gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, allow me to tell you another story, more recent in history, but still a Quite a few years back, if not centuries ago, John Newton was born into a home with a Christian mother. And John Newton's mother would teach him scripture verses, particularly verses related to salvation. And as a little boy, he committed those verses to memory. His mother died when he was six leaving him orphaned and he was shuttled off to some family member who made fun of Christianity who had no faith whatsoever. And his faith was pressed down. It was put down. In fact, he didn't have a personal faith but any faith that a little child would have had it was completely squelched by the environment in which he lived. He ran off when he turned about 12 or 13 and joined the British Navy became a a seaman's apprentice. And he ended up Going out to sea, it was said that he was noted for being able to swear. Now imagine this, he could swear for two hours, this is one of his bragging rights, without ever using the same swear word twice. He was taken as the ship made its way southward toward the Africa area. He got off the boat and he went ashore. And in his memoirs, this is why he said he deserted from the British Navy. He deserted so that he could send to the full all that he wanted to send. He took up with a Portuguese slave trader there. And the Portuguese slave trader would go off for periods of time and leave him and all others under the directorship of his wife, who was an African herself. She was very cruel. In fact, she hated white men particularly. And she would chain him up. That is John Newton. She would chain him up, and he would eat like a dog. And if he ever used his hands trying to eat, she would beat him with the very chains with which he was chained. Well, seizing the opportunity when it came, he escaped. Emaciated, he made his way to the coast. He was picked up by a British boat there. The captain thought he was an ivory Trader, but he picked him up. He discovered soon he was not an ivory trader. But he did discover that this man was able to help him navigate. So he took him on as part of his staff on the ship. As they made their way up the coast of Africa and were sailing back to what we now know as Great Britain, the captain left the ship one day to go ashore and left the crew on board. Under the instigation of John Newton, Newton got out all the rum that was there and they all got drunk. When the captain came back to the boat and found out who the culprit was, he hit Newton in the head and Newton fell overboard. Had it not been for someone reaching down and grabbing him, he would have drowned in his drunkenness. Well, it was not long after that episode that the boat neared the coast of Scotland, which was its final destination. But a fierce storm came up and blew the boat off its course. The result was that those on board thought the ship was going down. It was beginning to take water. Newton, among others, was ordered to go below and to pump. And for days, he pumped. And during those days, for some unknown reason to Newton, all those verses of Scripture which he had memorized at his mother's knee began to come back to him. Those great passages of Scripture related to how one comes to faith in God through Jesus Christ. And he cried out to God in the hold of that ship, in the bowels of that ship, in which he thought he was going to die, he cried out to God to save him. Born in 1725, he died in 1807. Historians of the Church of England call him the second founder of the Church of England. He was a great evangelist, a great preacher of the gospel. And he is the human author of the great hymn, the most loved hymn of all hymns, probably Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. He reflects what the man who was healed by Jesus said in John 9, 25. But one thing I know, once I was blind, but now I see. Now what happened to this man? If God can save John Newton, he can save anybody, correct? Correct. This gospel is a gospel that is powerful. And we need to understand that in both the cases of Augustine and Newton, they come, came under great conviction of sin, just as the Apostle Paul came under great conviction of sin. For a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to be converted, he or she must understand that there is a need for conversion based upon that person's condition in relationship to God. That's why the Apostle Paul has spent so much time now let me rather quickly talk about some of the differences between then and now. If you're in Christ, the most obvious one is the one which I've been talking about thus far today, and I'm not going to belabor it. Then there was wrath, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is now being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You and I need to understand that if we are in Christ, there was a time when we were under the wrath of God. But the Bible says here, and look again at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Wrath then, the righteousness of God now. Another contrast that can be drawn is condemnation then and justification now. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The obvious implication is there was condemnation. And by the way, the word which is translated condemnation is a word of the law courts of Paul's day. It's a word which was connected to the punishment for a capital offense. In other words, we weren't just going to be sentenced to some prison term. But we were under capital punishment because of the sin in our lives. We were destined to die spiritually. Now turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans 5, 9. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Remember, Then we were under condemnation, but what is true of us now? We have now been justified by the blood of Christ. Now, let me give you a simple definition of what it means to be justified. It's a little hokey, but it'll help you remember it, I think. It's always helped me. Here's the definition. Look at the word justified and divide it into three parts. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what the word justified means. And if we are in Christ, that's exactly what the Bible says about us. When God looks at us now, we're no longer under His condemnation. We are now in Christ Jesus, therefore we have been justified by the blood of Christ, namely the death of Christ and the price which He paid when He died on the cross for our sin. Here's a third set of contrasts. contrast between bondage or slavery and freedom. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Paul uses these words again, but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What Paul is saying is before he received Christ or before anyone receives Christ, that person is under the law. Now the law has two purposes. The law as human law is concerned, the spiritual law has the Role of restraining evil in our lives. But it also, as we saw last week when we looked at the latter part of verse 20 of chapter 3, it has the purpose of revealing our sin to us and showing to us that there's no way we will ever live up to the standard which God has set. Therefore, we must look elsewhere for our salvation, namely to Jesus Christ. He says... Now, we have been released from that law. We are under grace at this point. We are no longer under law. Now, turn to 622, Romans 6.22, and Paul employs these words again. Verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Before we received Christ, we were... Slaves to sin. After having received Christ, we are free. Why? Because we are slaves to Him. And He sets us free. Remember what He says. If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. Exactly. There's a final set of these contrasting things between what we were and what we are if we're in Christ. And the final set is exclusion from the people of God, participation with the people of God. Now, we won't turn to Ephesians chapter 2, but just listen as I quote from that passage of Scripture. But in Christ Jesus, those of you who were far away have now, get it? But now, have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. We've been brought near. Consequently, Paul goes on to write, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. If we're in Christ, and most of us are of Gentile origin, if we're in Christ, we were once far away. But what has happened now? We've been brought near through the blood of Christ, through what Jesus has done for us. What a marvelous thing has occurred in our lives, then and now. Then there was wrath. Then there was condemnation. Then there was slavery or bondage. Then there was exclusion. Now there is righteousness. Now there is justification. Now there is freedom. Now there is participation or inclusion in the people of God. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, quoted from that passage once, let me conclude with this quotation. He says, but whatever I considered profit, get this, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, he goes on to say, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But now, do you have a now in your life? Can you remember when there was a then? And do you have a now in Christ? The Apostle Paul, certainly thinking of himself, but thinking of anyone who is in Christ, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are have become new. In Africa, when a person comes to know Jesus, the person, if the person is not from a Christian background, takes a new name, it's a, a Christian name. In a particular region of Africa, a man came to Christ, and he was a very ungodly man before he came to know Jesus. And the name which he took very appropriately reflects... What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the name which he gave himself was after. After. There was a then in his life. There now was a difference in his life after receiving Christ. Is that true for your life? Is there any difference in your life now than there was then? If there isn't, please consider Yielding your life to Christ. And let Him give you a now. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You in Jesus' name to help us to be more appreciative of what You've done for us. We ask, Lord, that You would make us more like You. We thank You, Lord, for giving us a now in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for taking lightly where we were and what it took to get us to where we are now in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.